listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. So we're in our series called The Essentials. We are dealing with eight doctrinal positions, eight theological statements that we would call essential to the Christian faith. It doesn't mean that those are more important than other doctrinal statements, other statements of faith. It just means that by them being essential, to step away from those beliefs, to deviate from those positions in these particular areas puts us potentially on the outside of the Christian umbrella. And that's not where we want to be. We want to be inside the umbrella of belief as it applies to our faith. What has the scripture taught? What does it clearly say about the, the, the essential nature of the faith? Now, there are other things. We've said it week after week that are non-essentials. It doesn't mean that these aren't important. It just means that there is room for disagreement within the Christian faith. You can have differing opinions and not necessarily be outside of the umbrella of Christianity. And so that's why we're dealing with these essentials. Over here in the non-essentials, we're going to hug and we're going to embrace in our disagreements. But over here in the essentials, we're going to absolutely have to plant the standard. We're going to have to plant the flag and say, no, this is an essential of the Christian faith. And we've got to defend this essential, not so much because Christianity needs defending. You know, Christianity doesn't need defending. If you ever, we were talking about this yesterday in the, in the discipleship class. Uh, God doesn't need us to defend the Christian faith. And then you go like, what? I thought, no, no. He doesn't need us arguing with people and, and hurting people to defend his honor. You know, you know God's honor is intact. He, his, his reputation far precedes him. He, his, his truth is eternal and he doesn't need us to defend it. What we're defending is the accurate presentation of the faith. That's what we're defending so that when we communicate about the faith, we're doing so in an accurate way so that the hearer might hear the truth as God intended it. All right, so when we plant our flag and we say we're standing on top of that hill and bring it on, we're not defending God. You don't need us to defend him. We're defending his truth as it goes out from us. Does that make a little better sense? So that's why we're dealing with the essentials, so that you'll be equipped and prepared to communicate the faith accurately, especially in those realms where no deviation can be allowed. So we're in essential number five, but let's go through the past essentials so that we can get caught up. So essential number One, we talked about bibliology. Let's read it out loud together. Essential number one, the Bible alone is authoritative. It is inspired and inerrant in the original documents. 
Go back, listen online if you weren't there, but we say that the Bible is our authority. The Bible is God's word. The Bible teaches no error. The Bible is God's word to us, final and complete. It is his instruction to mankind. No other sacred writing or any type of, uh, uh, of work that someone might say is, is sacred. Nothing is like the Bible. The Bible alone is authoritative. The Next, we talked about theology proper, and that's how we are to understand God essentially. We can't really understand him, but how do we understand him as an essential? Let's read this one together. God is Trinity, one God eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't understand God. In fact, you can't even understand what that statement means. You can You can understand what it's saying, but you can't relate to what it means because there's nothing else in our universe that's like God the way he is one what, three who's. He's one God, but he's distinctively existing in three unique persons. Uniquely God the Father, uniquely God the Son, uniquely God the Holy Spirit. So theology proper, the study of God specifically, we said essentially you've got to understand God in his, as he has revealed himself as one God in three persons. And then we move on in essential number three to Christology. Okay, well, how are we to understand Jesus specifically as it applies to his incarnation, his coming, his, his self-emptying and putting on flesh so that he might be our substitute? And, and we say it this way, I say it out loud. Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. How can you be 100% of two things? You can't understand it any more than you can understand how can one God be distinctively existing in three persons. Yet scripture clearly defines Christ as never ceasing to be God, but becoming human in every way like you and I with one exception. And that is in the area of sin nature. Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus did not have a sin nature and Jesus never sinned. That's the only difference between his humanity and our humanity, yet he never ceased to be God. How do we understand that? You can't understand it, but when we communicate about Jesus, we want to communicate accurately. If you weren't here that week, I would encourage you to go back online and listen to this essential because unfortunately, so much of how we think about Jesus, how we imagine him in his humanity and his deity, if we're not really, really careful, we can fall into some pretty ancient heresies of how we think about the nature of his humanity and the nature of his deity so if you weren't here that week I would encourage you go back and listen to that particular talk because you want to make sure that you're not communicating about a Jesus that has already been determined to be heretical we need to be very careful how we communicate about who Jesus is both fully God and fully man Christology then last week we looked at uh, anthropology How are we to understand humanity? How are we to understand how God sees and knows us? And we said, let's read it together. The human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. We argued that from the point that Adam and Eve sinned, 
Because of what scripture teaches, we understand humanity to be plunged into sin. We are completely sinners as a result of Adam's sin. A dog is not a dog because it barks. A sinner is not a, 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 the sinner is not primarily a sinner because it sins. A dog barks because it's a dog. Sinners are sinners primarily, sinners sin primarily because they're sinners. Because I'm born in sin, what am I going to begin to do as a sinful human being? I'm going to live in sin. I'm going to commit sins. Why? Because scripture teaches that the human race is not born in innocence. They're not born waiting to make their choice just like Adam and Eve did. No, we're born in sin by the sin of one man. He was both our, he was both our federal head. We are guilty because he's guilty. His guilt was imputed onto our account and, and we're sinners because it's passed down through his humanity to us. So we've got both his guilt and our own sin that brings about with it guilt. And what can we do about our sin? The answer to that is absolutely nothing. You are incapable, and so am I, to do anything about our complete lostness and death spiritually. So what then? Well, we come to hope. Hope is what we talk about today when we reach essential number five. Essential number five goes into the theological realm of soteriology. This is the doctrine of salvation. And it says, let's read it out loud. Salvation is made possible by the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation is made possible by the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sin destroyed mankind and sin made us God's enemy. But here's what God intended, redemption. Redemption, listen to this, redemption is God's movement toward his own hostile enemy. For no benefit of his own, motivated completely by his love. What is redemption? It's God advancing in love on his enemy. Advancing with open arms on his enemy for no benefit at all. There's no benefit at all for God to advance on his enemy, which is humanity, God gets nothing from this. There's no benefit that we bring, but God advances on his enemy, motivated completely and totally by his love. That's what redemption is. That's where salvation is found, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Salvation is made possible by the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, we need to understand that salvation is God's gracious initiative. Salvation is God's gracious initiative. How can we be saved? It's only by God's grace. 
God's grace is the foundation of salvation. It is God's gracious initiative. How do you define grace? Grace could be defined, and I've heard some say that you spell it out according to the, to the letters in the word. It's God, God's riches at Christ's expense. I like that. But grace basically is undeserved, unwarranted favor. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Don't mistake grace and mercy. See, mercy is a little different. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And salvation is God's gracious initiative. Salvation equals, in our handout, it equals the work of God's grace on behalf of mankind in providing a way of deliverance from the condemnation and penalty of sin. It's God's grace on behalf of mankind in providing a way of deliverance from the condemnation and penalty of sin. Because we are sinners, because of our sin, Jesus told Nicodemus, You're condemned already. And salvation is God's grace on our behalf, providing a way of deliverance. He didn't demand a way of deliverance. He's not going to pick you up and put you on that way of deliverance, counter to your will. He's not going to bring you out of your sin and save you kicking and screaming. God has provided a way of deliverance. That way of deliverance is necessary. Why? Because we are condemned in our guilt. We are condemned in our sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8, it's not in your handout, but it says, the first part says, for by grace you have been saved. It's God's gracious initiative. Now we're going to see how God extended grace to different ones in the Old Testament. And I'll just go ahead and let you know. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. So could just go ahead and, and make yourself comfortable. Just get nuzzled in there. You know, whoever, whoever you're sitting beside, just get comfortable because we got a lot of scripture to read today. But you know, it's God's word that's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And let's let him say what he says about salvation today and, and pay less attention to what I'm saying. First, we see God's gracious initiative by showing grace to Adam. Who, who, who were the first to sin? Adam and his wife Eve. And, and who were the first to experience grace? Adam and his wife Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, it says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who's God talking to? He's talking to the serpent. Adam sinned, Eve sinned. Then God came looking for Adam and Eve and he says, where are you? And they're hiding because they recognized their, they'd sin and they had, had hidden themselves because they realized they were naked. And, and then once it, once it all came out, it's not that God didn't know it, but once it all came out in the open, then God began to communicate the consequences of their sin. He communicated to Adam his consequences. You're going to toil. You're going to work. It's going to be hard for you. It wasn't my design. My design was for work to be fulfilling. Now it's going to be a frustration. Can I get an amen? Amen. Then, and women, childbirth, 
It's going to be painful. I have to think that maybe that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Maybe I was supposed to have babies and it'd be like awesome and parties. But, you know, poor Eve, she plunged y'all into it. Eve, it's going to be tough. Sorry, Mika. But it's going to be tough, God says. But we're going to be there with you and we're going to support. He says, and then he looked at the serpent and he says, uh, now you, deceiver, you, you're going to also be cursed because of your part in it. And that's who he's talking to. He says, I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put, I'm going to put a, 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 a disagreeing force between your seed and the woman and between, between your offspring and her offspring. Not between humans and snakes, although I would be first in line to say that's the enmity between humans and snakes. They're the enemy. They're gross. If you play with them, there's something wrong with you. Thank you. Thank you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, he's talking about those who will continue to follow him. He said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and, your, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Serpent, guess what? You're going to strike out at the seed of the woman and you're going to strike his heel. It's going to hurt, but it's not going to be fatal. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to take that heel and he's going to crush your head. Now, there's not much better imagery in my mind than a heel crushing the head of a snake. The idea is the gospel. Where's the gospel first proclaimed? Genesis 3.15. If you got a paper Bible, I'd underline it. I'd put a star there beside it. Genesis 3.15, God says, guess what? What you've encouraged these folks to do, I'm ultimately going to provide a means of deliverance. That means of deliverance is going to strike pain in him, but it is going to crush you and all of your kind as it brings these into deliverance. Grace to Adam. Could God have just destroyed Adam at that time? Absolutely, he didn't. Genesis 3.21, the Lord made for Adam and his wife not another set of leaf garments, but he provided for them garments of, sin, of skin and clothed them. For God to have provided for them garments of skin, I believe the intention there is for us to understand that an animal lost his life. And we see that first substitute for them to be clothed, this had to die. For them to be addressed, this had to die. And we see this grace being extended to mankind by the God that they had thumbed their nose at. We see grace to Adam. Next, we see grace to Noah. We were talking about uh, this week about how that Genesis, it, it kind of, it time warps in, in a hurry. Like you read about Adam and Eve and you read about their sons and all of a sudden it's like in like nine verses, you just went like hundreds of years. And, and, and that's the way Genesis designed to show, because God's main point was now that sin's in the world, Look what happens. It begins to snowball in a hurry to the place where when God looked at humanity, he saw in Genesis chapter number 6 verses 5 through 8, we see grace to Noah because 
Genesis 6, 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, talking about mankind's heart, was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven for I am sorry that I have made them. I'm gonna wipe them out. But, verse number eight, but Noah found favor Noah found grace Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord why why did Noah find grace because he was not sinful no because of God's gracious initiative to mankind in providing a means of deliverance God chose to show grace to Noah even in the midst of all of that destruction Grace was extended to Noah. We see grace extended to Abraham. As Noah and his family uh, went through and endured the the flooding of the earth and then the repopulation of it, and and really they walked off the boat and and basically uh, the whole pattern of sin started over again because you know what? Noah and his family were all sinners as well and it just it's been snowballing ever since but God had a new plan and 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 as they replenished the earth the a new group of people came about in in the area of the Chaldean area in a city called Ur and God called a gentleman by the name of Abram because he wasn't a sinner? No, because God extended grace and he called him to be his follower and to be the father of a great nation. And God, God allowed Abraham, after some sinful snowballing, to actually have a child through his wife, Sarah. And now this was the child of promise and God's demonstrating his grace to Abraham and here's our child and, and God, your promises are gonna come true. And then God throws a curveball at Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, verses 12 through 14. And he said, God said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Why is God saying this? I'll tell you why. Because God came to Abraham and told him in a vision, in a dream. I'm not sure how he came up, but he communicated to Abraham. Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your son And I want you to take him to a place that I'll show you. Basically, you just start going that way. And when you get there, I'll tell you that you're there. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Now, we've talked about that a number of times in in my time here at Oasis Church. I brought this up. and, And can I just tell you, if you can understand that and just flip the page and move on, then you've not fully understood that. This man was called on by God to kill his son in worship. If you know how that's to be worked out, then you got some explaining to me to do because I, my brain cannot comprehend that. Like I'm telling you right now, I just, in my humanity, I'm just imagining God telling me to take one of my boys and lay him up on the sacrifice. And I'm just hearing me go, no way, God. There is no way I'm going to. Look, can we be honest? If you're sitting there going, not me, boy, I'd lay him up. That's a lie. 
That's a lot. Even the worst of children, you wouldn't do that. Let me make us sick to our stomach. Well, what did Abraham do? He's like, I don't, I don't know what this means, but I know who this God is, and I'm, I'm taking my son. And he took him up to the top, and he laid him down on the altar, and the boy's looking at him going, Dad, what's up? And Adam say, or Abraham's saying, I'm just doing what God says. I'm assuming he's going to bring you back to life. And as, as Abraham raised the knife, and you need to understand, when he raised that knife, that boy was as good as dead. Abraham was coming down. And I'm imagining that he's just, you know, t- tears and agony. Why is this happening? Why are you asking me to do this? And what does God say? God said, don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Adam lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram that was not there before. Now it is there. Why is it there? Because God demonstrated grace to Abraham. He provided a sacrifice in place of his son. And he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I don't think that that, I don't think that that picture was as much about us seeing Abraham's faith as much as it was about us seeing and wrestling with the agony of a father willing to give up his son. And what God did for Abraham, he was willing not to do for himself. We see grace given to Abraham. We see grace given to Israel. How is it given to Israel? As captive people in the land of Egypt, God allowed them grace as he's delivering them from their captivity. God provided for them a way of escape. It's called the Passover, Exodus 12, 1 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months. He's changing the the new year right here. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to to what each shall eat, you will uh, make your count of the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. That's why we haven't kept up so we can inspect it, make sure there's no defects with this lamb. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, then they shall kill it uh, with their, they shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse number seven, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the house in which they shall eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall 
shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the good, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt for us to be saved and delivered from God's judgment. That lamb had to die so that the blood might be applied in my place as grace from God, the Passover. We see also grace from God to Israel in the day of atonement, a day of sacrifice for them. Leviticus chapter number 16, verse number five says, and he shall take from the congregation, talk about the priest, from the congregation of the people, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then we jump to Leviticus chapter 16 when he explains this day of atonement in Israel. Here's what God says in verse number 15 of of the same chapter. Then he, talking about the priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. He's going to sprinkling it over the mercy seat. Where is the mercy seat? The mercy seat is on the inner, uh, the inner compartment of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. That Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with the people. And they would take that blood of the sacrifice. They've already done it with a bull. And they would bring it in and they would sprinkle that blood on on the, on the top, which was called the mercy seat. They would sprinkle the blood as a sin offering. Then he would offer one of the two goats and bring that blood in and sprinkle that on the day of atonement. He would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat, verse 16, thus shall he make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel and then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall pre- present the live goat. So he takes the goat and he, he sacrifices it and he begins to atone on all of the pieces, on all of the furniture, and then finally on all of the people. He's sprinkling this blood as an atonement. What is atonement? Atonement is paying for something that is owed. 
Atonement is appeasing wrath that is deserved. And that blood is a sprinkling of this, of this sacrifice on those who need deliverance. And then he takes the live goat because the ceremony is not over. Verse number 21. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to, rem- to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. For there to be atonement, for there to be an answer to the sin of the people, there has to be sacrifice and blood. And then the sins of the people have to be laid on top of one that can take it away. So he would lay his hands and he would confess the sin of the people that has been sprinkled and covered by this blood. And then they would send that goat away from the camp. They would take it as far away as they needed to, to make sure that it would never return. And they did this every year. And what was this? The day of atonement. God demonstrated grace to Israel by providing them a way for their sin to be addressed every year. You know why? Because they could not keep God's holy law. You know why? Because they were completely lost and dead spiritually. So this day of atonement and this Passover day demonstrated God's grace to Israel. I'm providing you a way of deliverance. From the condemnation, the penalty of sin. We see grace in the Old Testament extended to Moses. We see it extended to David. We see it extended to Daniel and Hezekiah and Joshua and Elijah. And the list goes on and on. God initiating grace to his hostile enemy. Salvation is an act of God's gracious initiative. The cross, however, the cross of Christ is the final sacrifice of substitution. Atonement, it equals the removal or forgiveness of sin through a sacrifice resulting in God's appeasement. It's the removal of sin through a sacrifice resulting in God's appeasement. Some of us have a hard time and I'm actually reading a book right now by a pastor. Uh, I, I get what he's trying to do, but basically he's trying to, to write out of Christian, the, 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 the story of God's word. He's trying to write out the wrath of God. Because in his mind, he says, this just seems like the, the pantheon of gods that get upset and they show us and the volcano starts to bubble and we go to the top of the volcano and we get the town virgin, we throw her in the volcano and it settles back down because he's having a bad day and needs to say, and he's like, that's not the God of scripture. Oh, 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 look, it's not the God of scripture. The God of scripture is holy. The God of Scripture is not having a bad day. The God of Scripture cannot exist 
where sin is not being dealt with. And God in his gracious, in his gracious initiative is dealing with sin in a temporary fashion throughout human history. But you cannot deny the wrath of God that has been communicated from one cover of the scripture to the end. God simply has no reason whatsoever not to annihilate us completely without any thought of humanity. When we see the cross of Christ, when we think about atonement, you're not atoning, you're you're not trying to appease a grumpy God, you're trying to approach a holy God in the way he has shown you his holiness. So what's the cross? The cross is God's final sacrifice that will finally appease his wrath. The Old Testament sacrifices in your handout. The Old Testament sacrifices provided only an incomplete or temporary atonement. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number one through four. The writer of Hebrews says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of, this, of these realities, look, the law was only, it was only a shadow. It was only a temporary. It was only a, 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 an incomplete version of what was to come. It can never, the law and all of its sacrifices and all of those dead animals, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year Make perfect those who draw near. Those sacrifices will never bring it to completion. Otherwise, would they not cease to have been offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. So what? So Christ's sacrifice provides complete atonement. Because all those animals, while they weren't dying for nothing, they weren't dying for anything eternal, anything permanent. It was always incomplete. But Christ's sacrifice provides complete atonement. First, we see in Christ's sacrifice, we see it's, it is by nature sacrificial. John chapter number 10, verse 18, 17 and 18. Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay down, I, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. What happened to Christ on the cross was absolutely voluntary sacrifice. You can't take my life from me because I never cease to be God. Even though I am fully, fully human, I never cease to be God. You cannot take God's life. He can only lay it down. And he says, I do that willingly. I have authority to lay it down, take it up. I can do whatever I choose, and I choose to lay it down. We see in the cross, Christ's sacrifice is 
substitutionary. It's sacrificial. It's substitutionary. First Peter 2, 24. Peter says, he himself, talking about Jesus, he himself bore our sins, not his. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Taking that from Isaiah 53. It was sacrificial. It was substitutionary. We say it all the time. In our place and for our sin. The cross of Christ, the sacrifice that he provided is also sufficient. Sacrificial, substitutionary, sufficient. First John chapter number two, verse number two. It says, he is the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation? Propitiation is a word very much like atonement. Sometimes when this word propitiation is used, it's used in a noun form and it's actually coming from the word mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. Now that's not how it's used in this particular verse because it is a, it is a verb form, but it is the same word. What is the mercy seat? In the Old Testament, it's the top of the Ark of the Covenant where every year the blood would be brought in and God's wrath would be appeased. Not God's wrath, he's mad at you. God's wrath, he's incapable of existing without sin being dealt with. And so this this mercy seat would receive that blood from the from the priest. And now what Peter's doing is he's making a clear point in saying that Jesus is making propitiation for us. Jesus is becoming the mercy seat so that in Jesus, the wrath of God's holiness is appeased. Peter knows exactly what he's writing. Of course, he's or John is, knows exactly what he's writing. He's being led by the Holy Spirit. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's sacrificial, it's substitutionary, it's sufficient. The cross of Christ and his sacrifice is also final. Romans chapter number six, verse number 10 For the death he died, talking about Jesus, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. I mean, that's a a powerful phrase right there. Once for all. When it says once, how many times? One. No misunderstanding. And then that little word all. When he says once for all, how many? How many is that? All. All. Anything, any any sin not included in all? No, because that's what the word, the word means all once. He died as our propitiation once for all, but not only, uh, but the life he now lives, he lives to God. It's a final sacrifice. Not every year, one time, dealing with sin in a way that no animal ever could have. And then lastly, while we see that it's sacrificial, substitutionary, sufficient, it's final, it's permanent. 
It's permanent, the cross of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 12. He entered, here we go again, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what kind of redemption? Eternal. Not yearly, covering. We're going to be back here again. The sacrifice, the cross of Jesus is the final sacrifice of substitution. Salvation is made possible by the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Christ is the proof of salvation. The bodily resurrection of Christ is the proof of salvation. Plenty of people have died for a number of causes in human history. And some of those have died in very spectacular fashions. And some of those people have died throughout human history and are celebrated even today in different corners of the world for different reasons. Only one has died and rose again. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof of salvation. Christ's bodily resurrection validated the Old Testament promises of spiritual redemption. Let's look in Romans chapter one, verses one through four. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. How did he do it? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. The gospel had already been preached, had already been demonstrated. It was coming. The definitions, all the pieces was all there in the Old Testament through the prophets. Verse number four. And he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's the bottom line. Is Jesus Lord? The answer to that question is absolutely. And the world volleys back and says, how can you know that? Because he got up from the dead. And everything about him that was seen and known before his crucifixion has been signed, sealed, and delivered, cannot be denied in the resurrection. And here's the cool thing that you can know. It's a standard you can drive in the ground, and you can communicate this daily. When folks say the resurrection is a myth, the resurrection was made up. And you need to take your Bible, probably not on your phone, but maybe on your phone, and you need to say, look, You don't have to believe it just like you don't have to believe that Julius Caesar was in existence. Let me tell you something. The pages of this book right here are as valid an ancient document as there are any other ancient documents in this word. And through these these valid documents, we have eyewitness testimony that Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified by the Romans at the hand of his own people around the turn of the century, absolutely was seen alive. Now, if you can't believe that, then you can't believe any of the other historical documents that talk about other kind of historical people. And not only that, 
according to what my pastor told me a few weeks ago, there are thousands more copies of those documents than there are any other historical stuff in existence. So just on that, he got up. You're going to have to deal with it. And if he can get up from the dead, and everything he said about himself is true, and it validates this whole idea of him dying in our place as a substitute, as a sacrifice, validates everything that was said about him, that he got it from the dead. They ain't got to believe it, and that's on them. But it's still the proof. Christ's bodily resurrection was a fact and I just passed over Luke, so John, I'm passing over Luke, so just be aware. Christ's bodily resurrection was a fact witnessed by many. It was witnessed by many. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, verses 3 through 8. Paul said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What'd you receive? Who'd you receive it from? I received this from God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He explained this to me and now I'm telling this to you. What was it? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep talking about their dead verse number seven then he appeared to James we figure that's his brother then to all of the apostles last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me I was not looking for him he showed up he knocked me off my horse he blinded me he spoke to me he then called me and I know he's alive I saw him there's 500 folks most of them are still alive go talk to them if you don't believe me 1 Corinthians is an absolutely valid, no one in the whole world disagrees that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. No one. They all attribute 1 Corinthians to Paul, who was an eyewitness, who knew eyewitnesses at the time he was writing were still alive. Nobody's going to argue with that. If they do, they're an offshoot lunatic. He's alive because folks saw him. And you can ask any of them, are they dead today? Yeah, but we got eyewitness testimony right there. Proof that salvation, deliverance has been made available. And then lastly, Christ's bodily resurrection is absolutely necessary for our salvation. It's absolutely necessary. Let's stay in 1 Corinthians A little later on, a few verses down, he says, now, verse 12, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, and if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers to the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. If Christ is not raised, then you are still in your sin. <laughs> but thanks be to God, Christ is raised. It's absolutely necessary. It's absolutely attested. It absolutely proves the salvation that was initiated by God in the Old Testament by his grace. Salvation has been made possible by the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what are the practical applications for us today? Well, to know the truth, if you've never known the truth, to communicate the truth, salvation does not come because I had a warm feeling at a worship service somewhere. Because, because I, I, I was, I, you know, I, I just was a bad person and I went to this youth group thing and then they were talking about Jesus and I felt all warm inside and that's when I knew that I was right with God. No, no, no. Salvation is possible only by the death of a substitute. Jesus, a perfect sacrifice dying in our place and for our sins and that God raised him from the dead proves and validates and secures it. We are saved only by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if you don't know the truth, Know the truth. Salvation's been made possible for humanity that is completely lost and dead. And it's in the person of Jesus, his death and resurrection. Well, what are we going to do with that? Well, I folded it up. Let me bring it back out. First, God's salvation initiative for those of us who are believers in Jesus. God's salvation initiative sets the bar for grace in the lives of disciples. You realize that we've been called to exercise grace to those around us. And what was grace? It was uh, getting what you don't deserve. Hmm. We're supposed to do that. What's that supposed to look like? God goes, death of Jesus, sacrificial, sufficient, you exercise grace like I exercise grace. And, and what expense did he withhold to shower grace on us? So if you're a follower of Jesus, you've experienced his grace. Who do you have in your vice that you are turning the screws to? God says, um, that's the kind of grace you're supposed to show. It sets the bar of grace. Second, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice sets the bar for love. 
How much am I supposed to love these folks? Well, to the end. To the end of yourself anyway. It sets the bar for love in the lives of disciples. We want God's love and we love to hear about salvation that is the product of God's love. But if we are followers of Jesus and have experienced God's love, are we showing it? Lastly, Christ's bodily resurrection provides power and courage for disciples in the face of opposition, darkness, and fear. If you live in this world, you are going to face all three. Opposition, you're going to face darkness, and maybe some of us right now are even wrestling with fear. What are we going to do? We're going to look to the resurrection We're going to do what those apostles did who were cowering in fear, worrying if the Romans were not going to come get them because they were followers of Jesus, going to do the same thing to us. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is in the room with them. And then what did they start doing? Oh, then they started walking them streets. They started telling about him. Well, aren't you worried about those Romans anymore? Well, I mean, you know, if I'm going to be honest, I'm a little concerned. I mean, I certainly don't want to go through what they can do. But did you see Jesus alive? So like whatever they can do to him didn't work. He just said they can't do any worse to me. What'd they get? Power, courage to do what? To communicate accurately the salvation that has been made possible for humanity that is completely lost and dead. And it's it's in the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's some more key terms for you to wrestle with, some scriptures for you to look up. But understand that salvation has been provided. But how does that salvation go from God's offering to me personally? Because he don't just apply it to my account of his own will. There has to be a response on my part. Unfortunately, it's going to be a couple of weeks before we get back to the essentials because next week is our kids program and the week after that is Christmas. But can I go ahead and take, take the cat out of the bag, just kind of show you his face a little bit right there. Salvation provided. How do we get it? By faith. By faith. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Faith believing. We'll talk about it more in two weeks. But if you're on the verge of that right now and you're like, man, I was one of those that I just, I don't know. I, I never really thought about it being about Jesus' death and resurrection. I just kind of thought it was about me stepping into the warmth. I don't know. I, if you're one of those going, hey, that's, that's what brought about my salvation. You're talking about now faith in Jesus crucified and risen. I want to know more about that. I got all day. Don't you leave here. It's by faith. And I want to show you what that means, how that looks. But right now, you know in your heart, it's about saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me, and I believe he rose from the dead, and I want you to save me, and you can do that right now and begin a life of following him for his glory because of the salvation provided. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son who volunteered his life as a result of, of, of God, your grace and mercy and love. 
He volunteered himself as a substitute for a hostile enemy that didn't deserve your love, that didn't even want your love. But in your grace, you initiated deliverance. And we thank you that that deliverance is complete, it is final, it is sufficient, and it is for anyone who will, by faith, respond. So God, I pray right now in the stillness of the moment that you would draw that heart. And if there is one here that does not know Jesus as Savior, they've never, by faith, received him. They've never looked at themselves as the sinners that they are and knowing that they need deliverance. I pray that they will see the way of deliverance in Jesus and move toward him by faith. God, we ask that you will take your word and embed it into our hearts so that when we talk to people about the hope we have in our life, it will be about the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of God the Son in our place for our sin. We love you. We thank you. For Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said it.